All right, so if you are new here, uh, you aren't aware, but if you have been here for whether a year or a number of years, February is our favorite, oh, my favorite preaching month of the year because we start talking about love, right? So this uh, sermon series is called Tangled Hearts, a beautiful picture made up there by our creative communications team. And this is going to be for the whole month of February. Um, I mean, Priscilla mentioned you noticed the theme. We have the Valentine's Social going on marriage seminar. Um, and the same thing is going to be in our sermon series and then in our small group. So today I'm going to be kicking us off, and we're going to be talking about our relationship between men and women, brothers and sisters. We're also going to be talking about dating because the Bible doesn't recognize dating. It's not actually a thing in the scriptures. So how do we in present day who actually do date uh, actually have biblical foundations for that. We're going to be talking about our sexuality and sex. Um, and we're going to talk about thriving, whether it's in our marriage or singlehood or dating relationships. And it'll be a fun four weeks, so don't avoid it. Um, of the feedback that I actually tend to get from our sermon series, I get the most, I love the sermon and I hated your guts at the same time in our, in our February series. So hopefully, either whether you love me or hate me, you actually have some sort of emotional response. Uh, But I'm really excited, so let me uh, pray for us, and then we're going to kick off our series, uh, Tangled Hearts. God, thank you for each other. Thank you for the church. Thank you for brothers and sisters. And I especially want to um, emphasize that language and not let it be uh, overly repeated Christian words without meaning. But we really are brothers and sisters. Because the blood of Christ unites us even further than family or human blood. And so, Lord, knit us together. Teach us what it means to love each other. Strengthen us in your spirit, through your spirit, so that we could bear Christ-likeness in the way that we treat each other, the way that we even pursue romance, the way that our marriages thrive. And we truly want and pray and desire and ask that you would transform this community even in this February, as we try to match it up with Valentine's Day and maybe be a little bit cuter, uh, we're just wanting to know how we can pursue this together and in a way that pleases you. So would you do that work? We trusted it and entrust it and put everything in your hands. Thanks for being with us and for promising to always be alongside of us, with us, in us working through us. We confess that we need you, God, to be the transforming power at work. And we pray that Cornerstone would be blessed and transformed as a result of all this, whether it be the sermon series or small groups and all that we're talking about as we just figure out love and relationships. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the reality of it, I'm sure that every single person in this room would agree with me, is that relationships can be hard. They can be tricky, they can be confusing, anxiety-provoking, they can be annoying, Uh, they can just kind of throw us off of our game and just present a lot of issues, if I might call it, right? I heard one uh, one of my, uh, as I was reading up a lot of books uh, many years ago on relationships, I remember one vivid image that one of the authors was writing about and saying how nowadays for a guy to ask a girl out on a date is like a soldier in the army, like on, in D-Day. So he, he had the imagery of like, I mean, he put it beautifully of like, 
The guys are all on a boat. It's kind of rocking, approaching the shore of Normandy. Like some are puking over the edge. Others are praying with their prayer beads and kissing their pendants. And then the boat hits shore, and it's all out from there. They're like running with their guns, like shooting. All while the women are in the bunkers, like, get back, right? Trying to fight them and kill them away. I've also heard an illustration of how Pocahontas and John Smith kind of are like our picture. So like Pocahontas represents the women, John Smith represents the men. The men are all trying to get Pocahontas to fall in love with us while she's all like, you think you own whatever land you land on. (laughs) Stay back, right? It can be confusing and it's almost legitimately a battlefield sometimes, maybe not with weaponry, but maybe with our words or lack of words, passive or actual aggression. It's tricky. And the thing is, though, that we seem to, in this day and age, be focusing a lot on the differences. And even all of everything that I'm talking about, a lot on the war field imagery. But the thing is, when we read the Bible, when I open up the scriptures and see what did God actually intend for men and women's relationships to actually be, it could not be further from that. It's in fact actually, I would say, by definition, the opposite of tension, of fighting, of confusion, of stress and and turmoil and strife. God actually didn't create us to be at odds, but for us to complement each other beautifully, so that I might even use the word perfect compatibility with each other. That was his intention and his design, and somehow along the way we've kind of steered so that it's like we're fencing with each other and trying to figure out this battle, when really we were meant to beautifully and perfectly be compatible. So what I want to do today is talk about God's intention, and the title of my sermon is Our Created Compatibility, And for us to go to biblical standards, not worldly ones, not human standards or information or even wisdom that comes from man, but purely from what what the scriptures say about how our relationships were meant to be. And for us, every single one of us in this room, to commit to the gospel transforming work so that we can get back to that place. So, I I assume it's not going to be a surprise. We're going to start with the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. So we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can open up. If not, you can look up on the screen. You can grab out your phone if you want to flip through the, uh, the Bible text while I read on your phone. So let's open up to that. Genesis chapter 2, right in the beginning of the Bible, verse 18. And we're just going to be reading a, a number of verses, starting from 18. Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so basically through this text, uh, I just want to talk about two simple points. Point one being that men and women were created for each other, for, God's, for our joy, and for God's glory. These is what, this is what I feel like we can see from this text, that we are created for each other, for our joy, and for God's glory. So starting from the very first verse in our passage, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is a, a dramatic contrast from what's been happening in the book of Genesis. So, I mean, we, haven't, we don't really have that many verses in front of it. It's just Genesis 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2. But you see this constant repetition in the creation narratives. So God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the sea and the land, the, the light and the, uh, and the darkness. He creates fruit and vegetables and beasts of the field and birds of the air, fish of the sea. And over and over and over again, if you were flip back into your Bible just one chapter before, he creates and then he sees that it is good. So he makes the animals, and then God said that it was good. He makes the fish of the sea, and God saw that it was good. He made the heavens and the earth, and God said that, saw that it was good. And you see this repetition over and over and over. And so a dramatic, emphatic contrast, you see the first thing in human history that was declared not good. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I've heard many preachers talk about how this great problem was Adam's loneliness. And while I don't think it's not true, I think to just narrow it down to that is a little bit incomplete. It's not just that he was lonely, but the problem that man has, and and I'll talk about why I feel this way, is that he will not fully experience his created life and his being until he loves one on his own level. The reason why I think this, let's, let's think about this verse right here. Who's the speaker? God. There is no point in Genesis where Adam says, God, I'm lonely. I don't want to hang out with the bears anymore. Like, can't you produce another human? He's in Eden, right? Perfection. Sin has not yet entered the world. There is no brokenness. He's never felt pain. If you were to tell Adam, what does pain mean? He's like, what is that? He has not sinned. He has every food that he could possibly imagine. He doesn't know what hunger and thirst means. He doesn't know what fighting means or tears or crying means. He's living in Eden. He has all power and dominion. He has every resource, and he has a perfect relationship with God. So who of us would complain at that situation? So Adam doesn't speak here. It's God. God says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is God's decision. And when I look at this, Again, our created compatibility is God as the actor looking upon his own creation. He himself determining, actually, I'm not done yet. Actually, this isn't complete. And it's his fatherly care to introduce the opposite sex, to introduce marriage, to introduce love. There is good, and God's created good in our need and our desire for companionship and love. So God addresses the problem, and the story continues. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Let's pay attention to how he created them out of the ground, and he brings them to them, to, to him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, and to every beast. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So again, they're created out of the ground. They are not fit for him. And so there's this contrast that the author is building between the beasts and then Eve. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made woman and brought her to the man again. And then the man said. So let's see this contrast that the author is building between us. The beasts are created out of the ground and they are brought to him, but they do not fulfill him. There's still a problem. God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates these beasts for him to have dominion and rule over, even to name. But they're not fit for him. Unlike the beasts, Eve is actually created from his own flesh and bone. And he brings her to the man. And then he says, before I read this, I want us all to remember this, hopefully for your lifetime, that there are a lot of biblical passages that we read wrong. And I actually read this wrong in the beginning on purpose. Because we would read this as, then the man said, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Let's look at what's happening here. This is the first time in human history that someone speaks. So maybe he's talked before, but at least in recorded history, this is the first words that come out of Adam's mouth. Not only is it the first time he speaks, but this the first time he exclaims, he is overjoyed. Not only is it the first time he speaks an exclamation, but he speaks in poetry. So if you notice the indentation of, this, of the slide and even in your Bibles, he's so overjoyed that he starts spilling out poetically. And it's the first time in human history that another human sees another human. So this is actually a very dramatic, romantic, overjoyed, celebratory time. So really, when I was reading this, all, I was sitting in my living room typing this out. I was like, man, Adam is not saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like a boring narrative. He's like, like, like celebrating, right? When I read this, I, I hear the background music. At last, my love has come. Right? See, that's what I hear. Like, picture the Etta James music in the background. She's more like a theologian than an R&B singer. Imagine that song right here. My love has come along. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Eve being created out of his bone out of his flesh, and for him to exclaim and to poetically, overjoyfully shout and proclaim this is to underscore their unity, to underscore their oneness, to underscore their likeness with each other. So it's not just, oh, I'm lonely and God solved this. No, he's being fulfilled and being able to experience love and unity with someone in his likeness. What I think is interesting is how he doesn't talk about their differences. Because he could have done that too, right? He could have said, oh, you're not like me completely. You're a little different even though I'm attracted to you. I mean, men are, there's other parts in, in the Bible where the male author, like in the Song of Songs, celebrates the female body, right? He talks about the, his lover's breasts. Why didn't Adam do that? Why didn't Adam say, oh my gosh, at last, femininity, curves, breasts, down there, flower, right? Am I allowed to say vagina in a sermon? I don't know. Uh, He doesn't talk about their differences. He talks about their unity and their likeness. And that is what brings him to start singing almost. 
Adam's response makes me wonder and pause and think, maybe we are so much more alike than we are different. I think for all of us, in our, whether, whether you're on the pursuit of romance and you're trying to figure it out, or whether you're in the middle of it in dating or marriage or whatever, I think there are so many times where we just feel so different from each other. Like, she's never going to change. He's never going to really understand me. And I think that we often get at odds because of this great chasm that comes between us. And then even the frequency of the actual breakup is a chasm that is permanent. And there's a lot of strife and, and, and hardship in our, in our relationships or even in our figuring out or trying to figure out the relationship. But what I see from God's intended creation was not this great divide, but that we are much more alike than we realize and that God created us to be com- perfectly compatible for each other, for joy, as we see through Adam's response, and from God's glory. It's not until the next chapter that any of this changes. Genesis 3 is the fall of man, and that leads me into my second point. Sin is the cause of enmity and strife between men and women. It's sin. Now, some of you are like, oh, did you go to seminary to learn that? Like, yeah, yeah, okay, it's obvious, but is it? Because I would say whether it be the church or the secular world, all of us, we, we tend to, whether listen to or believe or even be the teachers ourselves, of really highlighting that the issue in relationships is gender differences, is compatibility issues, is personality types. When you, when you, are you sure you want to date him? Because his personality is like this, and your interests don't even really align. What if he wants to play basketball and you want to go to the movies? Or you like uh, romantic comedies and he likes action thrillers? There's so much language about our differences and like whether our Myers-Briggs lines up. And if they're on opposite corners, then you might be perfect, but everything else in the middle is going to be chaos. I think we like to blame in our relational strife the differences. I tend to think that sin is the problem, not that your personalities aren't the same. Again, we look at what Adam's response was and how God created everything. He created us to be perfectly compatible. And even the, next, the last two verses of this passage that we read, it highlights their nakedness. Why? Because as they were naked, they were without shame. So there's this fullness of knowing, fullness of unity with nothing blocking the way, even literally like clothes and covering our our shame or our our nakedness. There is none of that. Sin is what ends up changing it, and then they clothe themselves immediately. So what I want to say, and maybe you still think it's a a duh kind of moment, I don't, is that our sexuality, sexuality, men and women, was intended for union, but sin is what turns it into a point of division. Sin is the issue. Sin is what puts strife between Adam and Eve. I think all of us fall victim to blaming the external circumstances, to blaming the personality, to blaming the life stage or the maturity levels, or, at our worst, blaming the other person. It's because of her that my life sucks right now. It's because of him that we didn't work out. 
I wonder how often we will continue to miss the mark as long as we continue to point to external things instead of realizing the strife in our relationships is because of here. I wonder how our marriages will start to transform or ever get out of the rut or get over the speed bump and not have to repeat the same speed bump over and over and over again until we start to realize that the sin inside of me is the problem, not my spouse. It's sin that puts strife between Adam and Eve, between men and women, between brothers and sisters. But here's the good news. The good news is that Christ comes down to earth. He ministers to people. He lives. He dies. And he's resurrected again. And he promises to come back. And all the while, he leaves his Holy Spirit to be with us. And his kingdom work that was inaugurated as soon as he was born onto this earth was about restoring. I know a lot of times from, from, from elementary school, we're taught that the gospel means that you're going to go to heaven when you die. But the gospel is so much greater than that. It's a promise of new heavens and new earth. It's a promise of restoration. What Jesus is doing, what his work is doing, and what the church does through his Holy Spirit's power is actually restoring humanity and all that is broken into its original intention. So what is happening right now and what must continue through our commitment is the church to commit to restoring the harmony and created perfect compatibility between men and women. When the gospel starts to take root inside of you, The strife starts to disappear and harmony starts taking root deep inside of us. The good news is that the good news exists. And that is very good news for romance, for brothers and sisters, for men and women, and for our relationship with each other. The blood of Christ is knitting us together and bringing us back to the way that we were united before sin entered this world. And it's our call not to passively just sit and wait, but to actually be an instrument, to be an actor in the story. So how do we participate? What do we do about it? How do we look back on the way that God created men and women to be perfectly compatible, but now we're not? How do we join in Christ Jesus' work in bringing us back there? I have just specific application that I would like to share, and I'm going to address both uh, genders separately, and I'm going to start with the women, but don't worry, guys, I'm going to get to you, so don't get too happy. And so this first line we're starting with is this, for both of our applications, joining the work Jesus is doing in restoring our created compatibility means dot, dot, dot. So ladies, ladies, sisters, We need to stop and not only stop, but get rid of and destroy cultures of demeaning men, of labeling them as creepers. I know it's a funny word, but I'm using it seriously. Labeling them as immature, awkward, passive. I talk, I I, I mean, I don't talk. I hear so often of this word that, bugs the crap out of me. Intentionality. What does that even mean? Because so oftentimes I hear, oh, that guy, he was so immature and unintentional. But the first question that comes to my mind, sisters, is what do you mean by intentional? Because 
isn't it likely that you might have a different, de- different definition of intentionality? So, but, but is your definition the objective truth? What if a guy was trying to be intentional according to his definition, but it didn't line up with yours? Does that mean that he's unintentional? We, 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 I hear too often like berating language to the men, whether it be pursuing or husbands or boyfriends or whatever, and, and they kind of get demeaned about being passive and timid and like, won't you be the one to take the first move? Uh, move and to, you have to be the initiator. But all the while, as soon as the guy pokes a foot over on the other edge to initiate, bullets are literally whizzing by his head, and yet we wonder why they're scared. How can we expect the men to boldly be the initiators of pursuing our women with intentionality if they're always afraid. Something that really saddens me is how many stories I've heard of a sister going to other sisters, whether older, peers, friends, or roommates, whoever, sisters going to sisters, and there just to be a lot of bad-mouthing about the gentleman, about the guy. Godly advice does not involve slandering a child of God. It's not godly advice. Somehow, I think there's been some blinding to when sisters talk ill about sisters, oh, that's sinful gossip. We need to stop. But when sisters speak ill of brothers, that's loving protection. How did that happen? Why is one gossip and one protection? Why is one sin and one love? What I'm not saying, hear me carefully, sisters, what I'm not saying is that you can't have an opinion. I'm not saying you can't even have a strong opinion. I'm not even saying you can't disapprove. Those might all be the very perfect loving thing to do, but I think your speech, your demeanor, and your conversation completely changes when you recognize that you are just as much a sister in Christ to the male as you are to the female. Nothing in the Bible says that sisterhood in Christ is greater than male and female siblinghood in Christ. Sisters, you are just as much of a sister to the men as you are to the sisters. There is no hierarchy. So what I want to say is joining the work Jesus is doing in restoring our created compatibility means for the sisters, creating cultures of encouraging, empowering, and uplifting the men so that they grow in godliness. You actually help us grow in godliness more than you realize. Not slandering, not cutting down. So to the men, brothers, you think way too highly of your own thoughts. You think you are much smarter than you really are. And you trust your judgment far more than you should. So the Bible and Proverbs, philosophers, secular philosophers, and even other world religions define fools as one who do not seek wisdom and counsel. If you are on the pursuit or in dating or in marriage and you are not seeking the wisdom and counsel of others, you are being foolish. You trust your brain and your strength and your expertise way too much. The lack of men seeking counsel from others is very, it's a, it's a sign of unhealth, I'll say. Men, 
We need to be the ones who humble ourselves and show our sisters, not through our words, our empty words, but through our actions, that we actually care about their well-being more than our own. And that will be shown through our actions once we start going to other people and saying, I need help to care for my girlfriend. I need your words to speak into me to figure out what it means for me to be intentional and to ask this girl out on a date. I need all of your help to figure out what it means to be a husband. And as long as our mouths stay closed and we think that we, because we're in our own kingdoms and rocking our crowns, we will be fools. We need the help of others. Many guys in this place, uh, you know, you grew up playing ball, right? Like pick up ball. Um, and something, there's a universal thing about pick up basketball. doesn't matter if you're from Boston or L.A. or New York or Montana. I don't care where you're from. There is a universal truth about guys in basketball that even the girls know. Okay? And this is something that I hate so much, and you guys don't like playing with me because I'm always yelling at you whenever we play basketball. It's, it's this. What happens when a guy scores? The hand goes up, right? They do a little trot backwards. They rush back on defense, start pulling up the shorts, and now they're all into it. They're all energetic and, like, you know, stomping the ground. What happens when they miss? Oh, my God, what's wrong with me today? And then excuses, right? Oh, I worked out this morning, and so my tricep is a little weak. And, and yesterday, I usually get eight hours of sleep, but I only had 7.5. That's why I missed the layup. And we're just screaming and pouting, and we're on the other end while the other team is, or while the team is already down on the other side of the court scoring on you, and it's your guy because you didn't run back because, oh, I'm such an idiot. You know that's a reflection of real life, guys? When we're doing well, we're like pumped up, we're energetic, we're friendly to people around us, other people like being around us. We're the life of the party. We're the initiator. We have leadership qualities. We're making baskets, and we're like, oh, yeah, leaving that hand up, and we strut around life. But as soon as speed bumps start coming in life or we start missing shots, it's like we're backsliding. We're we're lethargic and sluggish. It's like we have no energy, and our efforts really aren't there, and we're, we're not that pleasant to be around. We aren't taking initiative. We aren't being leaders in our community. Your manhood, gentlemen, is not stripped by the number of shots that you miss. Your manhood gets stripped by the lack of response to your missed shots. How are we as godly men going to see even trials and the worst trials in our lives, but to still keep the hand up and to still press through? If we want to be respected as men, regardless of the season or regardless whether you dunk the ball or like swish it from the half court line or airball it we need to be the ones hustling and getting back on defense first encouraging our teammates to play harder we need to be the ones with the energy and effort in fighting for our manhood so men joining the work Jesus is doing in restoring our created compatibility means We need to seek the counsel of others so that we will be grown and stretched by that wisdom. We need to show through our actions that we're committed to the wellness and care of our sisters above our own. And we need to press on. We need to have the resilience 
to press on through trial and continuously fight for godly manhood. So this is what I'm asking of us, church. And these are really specific, right? And they're even super specific to Cornerstone. I don't even know if, if some other random person in some other state was listening to our podcast would be like, well, that application doesn't really fit. It's us. I'm asking every single one of us to commit to this because it's not relationship work. It's gospel work. God created us. He created Adam and Eve to be perfectly in harmony. He saw a problem. Adam's singlehood and his being alone, he saw as a problem, and he solved that with marriage. And that was perfectly good. We have a created, God-intended, created compatibility that is beautiful, that produces joy within us, that glorifies God. Sin is what gets in the way. But the gospel is what overcomes sin. Sin is what breaks the relationship and makes us get at odds and say, oh, we're all messy. But the gospel is what brings us together. And I'm not only talking about romance, too, even in friendship among different sexes. So let us be the church that fully commits and says, God, I want to be participating in Christ's work of, his, of the gospel I work inside of our church, committing to the wellness of our brothers, the wellness of our sisters, and me, myself, committing to this work. I want to ask us, church, Cornerstone, to join Jesus in his cause in restoring us to be men and women created for each other, created for joy, ultimately created for God's glory. Today uh, is the first Sunday of the month, and every first Sunday of the month here at Cornerstone, we celebrate and we take communion at the Lord's table. And this is something that uh, oftentimes is misunderstood as like a somber moment, as a pity party almost, as a time for us to be really guilty about our sins. But it's not. It's a reminder of the restorative work and the gospel power in us. If you are a believer and you're able to come to the table and partake in communion, it isn't deprecation on yourself. This is grace being handed to you to be chewed, tasted, and swallowed. What I want to ask all of us as we do approach the table in a few moments is when you, whether you take it there or you take it back on your seat, once you do return, I want to ask that you think about, pray about, and dwell about just a couple things. First, thanking God that he's at work here. He's at work in you. What you just ate or are about to eat is a representation that he is working and that his spirit is moving and living inside of us. And specifically to this message today, that Christ is repairing the relationship between men and women. He is making us whole again. He is restoring the beauty in our compatibility. Let's thank him for that as we take. And then secondly, let's commit and respond. Let's say, God, as I, you know, experience your grace, and as we recognize and thank you for the work that you're doing between us, I want to be used for that cause. I want to be an instrument used to repair the relationship between men and women. I want to be the one that makes the language of brothers and sisters in Christ so glorious and beautiful. Let's do those two things.